and it goes all the way to chapter um, 13, verse 9. So it's a long um, passage where he's preaching this sermon. And we'll look at today's message under the title, Fear, Don't Fear. Hear now the Word of God. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or nothing that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Whether child or senior adult, speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. It is my prayer that all those in the sound of my voice and by way of the internet who are not in a saving relationship with Christ would come to a living knowledge and vital relationship with Christ as Lord and Savior this day. So, Lord, we ask that you would unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts. Meet us in our deepest place of need so that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, three headings, very simple. Fear, don't fear. Number one, the condemnation. Number two, the command. And number three, the Christ. And then at the end, we'll tie it all together with a little bit of comfort uh, in order to send you out. Just know that this is a long sermon, but when you look at sermons that are preached, just you know that it's not the whole message, right? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, uh, chapters 5 to 7, you can probably read that in, what, 15, 20 minutes? You could read this sermon from 12, 1 to 13, 9, 10 or 15 minutes. Jesus didn't preach 15 or 20-minute sermons. He preached all day, so be glad we stop when we do. Following the master's model, we could be here all day long. So what does that tell us in these passages? We don't have everything he taught, but we have what God wants us to have. 
So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers have given us what we need so that we can learn what God would have us to know. And this passage is really important today. Fear, don't fear is the title. Uh, need to see something. Always we want to look at setting and then we always look at context. The setting is important. And, and occasionally if you're visiting, just know that we don't do a lot of Hebrew and Greek, but occasionally we bring a word if it's important. So this one is, because you have to get a context. Remember, you want to look at Scripture sometimes by way of contrast. What's happening right now in the life of Jesus? There are massive crowds that are forming around him. He's past the three-year mark in his ministry, it seems. He's only a few months away from the cross, it seems. And in a few months, he'll go from these massive crowds to hanging alone. That's part of what we're supposed to get from these passages. So just briefly, just look at the, the Greek word. Murias, we get our English word myriad. You know what myriad means? A myriad of things, many. Uh, 10,000, it's, it's the highest number that they have a word for. They, they don't have a word for 10,001 or 50,000. So this is the biggest number they have a word for, okay? So that Greek word. So what is that telling us? It's telling us that there's not just 10,000. There's probably not just 20. So go to Revelation very quickly, just so you can see this in its context, how this works. Then I looked, 5.11, then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. Then here's that phrase. You ever wonder why that phrase is there? That's the highest number they have. It's the highest number they have for, that, for, for a word for that. 10,000 times 10,000. So what can we assume in this group? Assume just about anything you want. 50, 60, 30, I don't know, but what's the point? It's massive. They're stepping all over each other. Why? There was no PA system. There was no way to hear them unless you got up close. So just imagine, just picture what it would look like. That's part of what Luke wants you to see. That's why these words are used this way. That's why the Greek is constructed the way it is, so that we are drawn in. Remember, the goal is to be drawn into the story and then try to figure out where your story intersects with his, right? It's all about a story. So, so here's the picture. It's a massive crowd. They're following him because of the miracles that he's been doing. Maybe some are following because of the message. Some are actually saved, not many. But in just a few months, they will vanish. They will disappear. There will be no one left. That's the point. Okay? Ready? We're going to head out into some deep water this morning and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, the condemnation. One to three. Be on guard against the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus has just defined what that is. We're going to unpack that for a moment so that you can see how the New and the Old Testament all works together beautifully, especially when we're speaking to our Jewish friends and neighbors. But right now, let's just pause on the word hypocrisy. The Greek word hypocrites uh, is, is, was used in the ancient world in the Greek theater. And, and a hypocrite in the Greek theater, it, it didn't really have a, a bad connotation as it does today. It meant an actor. It meant somebody who would wear a mask. If you, can, you can look this all up on your own as well. But an actor in the Greek theater would, would wear masks, and they would portray themselves to be something that they were not. That's, that's where we get our word hypocrisy. Saying something and, and not doing it. Your, your walk doesn't match your talk. This is really deep. And we need to get an understanding of that. So it's, it's, it's referred to as the practice back 
in the ancient world on the stage of just changing masks and playing different roles. And, and these guys, these Pharisees, had become masters at play acting. And that's what Jesus is saying. You, you put on a front for everyone to see you, but I know exactly what's going on in your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 17, we look at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's saying you're filled with hypocrisy. So it's important that we see it. Then these next two passages just speak of the omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing. There's nothing that God doesn't know. And at, at some point, that, and at some level, that's a little frightening, right? But it should be a real good comfort more than anything to know that. So he says, nothing's concealed that will not be disclosed, nothing hidden that will not be known. And then three, what you say in the dark will be heard in the daylight. Isn't that true? There's a phrase that's used, your sin will find you out. You can't run and hide from this stuff. It eventually comes out. And what you whisper in the inner rooms, that's, again, you have to have context for this. What's the inner room? In the dwellings there, they're all built on, most of them obviously, are built on the ground, on, on dirt and earth, and you can kind of dig under it. So, so many dwellings would have an inner room, an inner chamber where you would put your, your valuables and your belongings, and you could kind of lock it there. So Jesus is saying, you go inside that inner room. So you're inside the dwelling inside the inner room, and you still can't get away from what? From me. I hear everything that you're saying. Then it gets deeper, because now he takes us to the roof. What were the roofs like back then, unlike ours today, for the most part? They're all flat. Remember, the, remember, remember God says you need to put a, a, a rail around your roof? You have to have a fence? You don't have to do that today. Why? Nobody's spending much time up on the roof. But back then, they were on the flat roof. So no, notice what he says at the end. And it will be shouted from the roofs. This is intense. He's, now he's going after them. These are his final few words. A few months away from the cross, he's now going right after them. So it doesn't matter where you go and what you say, it will be shouted from the rooftops who you really are. Wow. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch over the wicked and the righteous. Can't get away from God. No matter where you go, there he is, right? All right, let's take a look at this leaven, get an understanding of what's going on, and you'll see how it all fits together, Old and New Testament. That's what's important. When we say this, because we're trying to train our children, getting them ready to go to college. I have two in college. want to get them ready before they go to college. Why is Christianity true? They have to have an answer to that question. It's not enough to say, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's good for you today. That's good for you to say, Kate. But you can't say that at the academy. That doesn't work. You have to be able to answer the question, why is Christianity true? Above all other worldviews, why is it true? You have to know why. So we want to see this word as one word, from one God to one world. How does it all fit together? So that's what we're going to see here. The leaven, leaven you, you cook, you bake, you know what leaven is, right? It's just an agent for, for making dough to, to rise. But here it's deeper. It's an influence that works subtly to modify a whole. This is what you need to get. There's, he's, he, what does Jesus constantly do? And this is how we have to evangelize today. You have to use things that people understand and can connect with. Everybody understood what leaven was, but it's deeper. Why? What, what, who's he speaking to? Who's he speaking about? The religious leaders, they were Jewish, right? Those were Jews. And he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. So when he starts talking about leaven, unleavened bread, what are they thinking? They go back to Exodus. Of course they do. There's two Exoduses in the Bible, right? You go, no, no, pastor, there's only one. That's only one book of Exodus. No, 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 no. There's two Exoduses in the Bible, though, right? The first Exodus was out of Egypt. 
The second exodus was what? Out of sin and Satan and death. So Jesus is taking us back, taking the audience back. So ready for this? Exodus 12, 17 and 18. Remember they were told, now listen, again, you have to ask questions. Why are they told not to put the leaven in? Because they won't have time for the dough to rise. You have to be ready to, at, at a moment's notice to go. Couldn't God have controlled the moment's notice and given him time for the bread to rise? He's making a point. All the way back there in Exodus, he's setting up this scene for Jesus 1,500 years later. Do you see it? That's how you have to see the scripture. None of this is by accident. It's all by divine providence. It's all fitting together. So that story was a setup for what Jesus is saying. So now Jesus takes us back. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. What was that? It was a reminder of being freed from Egypt. And God says, because I brought you out of Egypt. Eat bread made without yeast. It didn't have to be that way. God ordained it that way. He was setting up this story later. So now, one passage in the New Testament, and it'll put it all together for us, and we can move on, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, so that you can get a sense of what's going on with this, this leaven, this yeast. Your boasting is not good. Throughout the scriptures, this leaven describes the permeating power of influence. Now, power of influence can be what? Very positive. Parents should have very positive influence over their children, brothers to sisters, friends, Church should be powerfully positive in our influence, the power of influence. But influence can also be very negative. That's almost exclusively the connotation in the Scripture in the New Testament when we're talking about this leaven. This is a bad thing. The leaven of the Pharisees is messing with every single person. It's messing with all of them. So here's what you need to see. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of the dough? So what is Jesus saying? You are an apostate religion. You have turned away from God. And every time that you open your mouth or every time that you do anything, remember what did he say? Take care not to perform what? Your righteous deeds so that men can see you. What was the goal of the hypocrite? What was the goal of the actor? To be seen. See how it fits? That's why we take it from the Greek theater. So they want to be seen. So they pray in public, standing up so people can see them. They give in a way that the trumpets will sound when they put their money in. They do what they do. Their right hand knows what the left hand is doing. What does the scripture say? Your right shouldn't know what the left is doing. Nobody's supposed to know that. Because if you do it in a way that, it, it, again, people will know, right, some of the stuff that we do. That, that's not the point. The point is your heart. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it so that people know? And if you do, then you, you've received your reward in, reward in full. That's what Jesus said. You got your reward. We're done. People know what you do. They're supposed to know, right? You, you're supposed to be able to put on the, the gospel on display for people to see that. But these guys were doing it because they wanted to be seen. That's what fed their egos. That's what mattered to them. Get rid of... Here it is. Ready? We're going to go back. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch... Are you with me? As you really are. What does that mean? What was the unleavened bread? Reminder of. Freedom from bondage in Egypt. And yet, once they were on the move, what did they first start to complain about? Remember, what, about a million people on the march? What did they first start to complain about? The menu. They weren't happy. with. They were just freed from bondage. 400 years, and they're complaining about the menu. That should be a reminder of you who complain about your menu at home at night. Don't complain about that. Be happy with what you get. That was a horrible thing for them to do. 
Well, we had onions and leeks and garlics back in Egypt. We want to go back. No, no, no. We were in bondage. We don't want to go back. So this is important that we're connecting the dots. He's saying that you, you, you are an unleavened. Meaning what? You don't have this bad influence anymore. It's been, it's been taken from you. You've been brought out of Egypt. Don't go back into Egypt. You've been brought out of Babylon. Don't go back into Babylon. You're in the world, but not of the world. Right? We don't exclude ourselves from the world, but we are, we are, we are in, but not of. So there has to be a difference. We make a difference by being different from the world. But we connect with them where they are. So here's a powerful picture. Therefore, therefore, right, that's a key word. Let us keep the festival. Be reminded continually of what you are. You're mine. I have separated you from the world. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Got it? That's how it all comes together. So that's the leaven of the Pharisees. That's the picture of what Jesus wanted us to see. He took us back to the Old Testament. He tied it all together. His audience knew that. He's making a claim for being who he is. So let's go to number two now. Now we're going to see the command. Take a look at this. This is important. I tell you, my friends, who's he speaking to? His disciples. Everyone's crowding in. Thousands are crowding in. They're trying to hear, what'd he say? What'd he say? What's he saying? And they're passing the words back as fast as they can. He's speaking to you tonight, today. This is a word for you 2,000 years later. I tell you, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Why did he say that to his disciples then? You probably don't live in fear of being put to death for your faith. Not here. But there are people right now who are dying for this faith. That's the truth. The guys he was speaking to were going to be put to death. First century Christian wasn't the same as a 21st century Christian. So he's telling him this is what's coming. You had better be prepared. And uh, biblically, we only know that James was actually martyred for his faith. However, outside of the Bible, we can learn a lot, right? Extra biblical literature, church tradition, tells us that all except John were martyred for their faith. And Peter was crucified upside down because he was not worthy, he said, to be crucified by, like his Lord. So Jesus is telling them what's coming. And you need to understand what's coming. Don't, don't fear. Listen. All they can do is kill your body. There's something far worse than death. Okay? Then he goes further. But I will show you whom to fear. Now notice he does this twice. Every word of God is important. Yes, nod your heads. When you hear something twice, you better pause. Fear him who, after killing, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, fear. Who's that? Fear God. Okay? Almost universally, no matter where you go all over the world, it depends on an individual, but for the most part, the majority of people, what's the number one fear in life? Death. That's the number one fear. I've had the privilege to stand over many saints who are heading off into glory. To watch a saint head into glory, it's, it's truly overwhelming to watch how they are 
just the calm, the peace, and the sense of what it is that's going to happen as soon as they finally take that last breath. Then I remember, I wasn't saved back at that time, but when I worked in the Hollywood Fire Rescue Department, I can remember, vividly I can remember being on, on scenes where you know, people were actually dying. I can remember being grabbed on my arms. I can remember being grabbed by those we were, we were treating. I can remember looking into the eyes of some who were just gripped with fear. Back then I didn't really grasp what it was. I wasn't a believer. But I can think back now and picture that. Those who are heading off into the unknown. That's a horrible way to go. That's real fear. Even those that say that, well, there is no God. Something inside tells them that there's something. And that is a horrible way to go. So Jesus says, don't fear death. If you have me, don't fear death. There's something far worse than death. Let's look at fear. We're going to look at it from a, probably the best perspective that I could find is really coming from a reformer, Martin Luther. This is really a good way to see it so that you can fully grasp what this means. The fear of God. Luther said there's two kinds of fear. Okay, One is servile, the other is flail. Take a look at the servile fear. This would be a fear that somebody in prison would have for his captor. Okay? Somebody who is, let's say, getting ready to be dragged out of the cell again to be tortured. They're in just this, this terrorized, agonizing fear. They're cowering in the corner. It's a slave to a malevolent master. That's one fear. That's not what this fear is that, that the Bible is speaking of. This fear is filial fear. It's the child to the parent. Children, you should have a healthy fear for your parents. But a fear of what? Reverence, respect, a fear of displeasing. That's what this fear is. Your greatest fear should not be doing something you ought not to do. Your greatest fear is that you break the heart of your parents. That's the point. You break God's heart when you turn from him. So that's this fear that, that's being talked about here. This is not a cowering fear. It's not a fear that causes you to run into the corner. It's a fear. Here's the challenge today in this cultural context. Those that do love the Lord, right, those who talk about the Lord, always want to keep the Lord in his imminent presence. And what is that? He's sitting next to you in the pew. Is that a good thing? Sure it is. Sure, he's with you everywhere you go. But you ought not lose the transcendence of God. Dr. Sproul would say that God is wholly other. Try to interpret that. Go to Isaiah 6. Read the call of Isaiah. Isaiah is called into ministry as a prophet in Isaiah 6. This is, a, this is the prophet Isaiah. And what happens to him in that, in that occasion? Heaven's open somehow. He sees into the court of heaven and he sees into this room, this, this room where Jesus is high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the room. And what, is, what does Isaiah do? He casts what's called an oracle of woe upon himself. In the Hebrew, the word that he uses when he says, I am undone, it means he's coming apart at the seams. His entire being is starting to unravel. Why? Why? Don't miss this. For the very first time in Isaiah's life, he saw the difference between a holy God and a sinful man, and he knew that he could not bridge that gap. Then God came with the coals, right? The seraphim came and put the coals on his lip. You remember the story. If you don't, it's a good story to read. It's powerful to understand what this fear is. This is awe and reverence for the almighty God. That's what we are to have. So you don't want to fall onto one side or the other. God is imminent. But we almost even exclusively, even in the church, live in an imminent frame, maybe with a hole in the top. That's not a good way to live. We have to live with that balance between imminence and transcendence. You have to have the balance of both. So that's what this fear is. Okay, wisdom says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's called an antithetical parallelism. It's very simple to understand. It's, it's written in a way to draw in your attention. 
It's, it's antithetical. They're opposite. They're parallel statements that are opposite. So what is it to be wise? It's wise to have the fear of God, the kind of fear we just talked about. You understand that fear? A healthy level of reverence and awe for the Almighty. But it's foolish to despise that kind of fear. So there's the picture. So what kind of fear do you have of God? If it's, if it's that healthy reverence, then you know you're His. That's the point. Okay? Three points. Continual awareness of His holiness. We can't remember that. What does it say in Scripture? You know there's only one attribute of God that's said thrice times? Holy, holy, holy. We always talk about God's love, 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 right? Right? Grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Isn't that a good thing? That's all true. But only one attribute is three times in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. We have a tendency to forget that. We ought not do that. You read the Scriptures... And you see those who've had encounters with a holy God. What happens? They're terrified. They're terrified. Because they recognize. The whole point of that teaching in Scripture is that, so that we would recognize the difference between a holy God and a, and a sinful man, which is us, sin. And we see the separation. But now we have no fear. Why? That separation, that gap, if you will, has been bridged by the cross. So we have no fear. Okay? Continual awareness of His holiness reverence for his majesty and sincere desire for his glory. So here's the key. Fear God and fear nothing else. They needed to hear that message, but I think we need to hear it today because, listen, listen, if you're not in fear, we have Officer Torres sitting at the, at the post every week, right? So we, we feel protected by him. He's here. He's willing to lay his life down in a moment's notice to protect all of us here in this church. That's, that's a powerful truth. We, we don't have that kind of fear. But what we ought to have is a real healthy understanding of who God is. And we're not God. And, and there's a separation between us and Him. And it's always going to be like that. So that's the key in understanding this passage. Do we have that level of, of fear? Okay? Number three, here's the Christ. And then we close. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, that's one of his favorite titles, yes, will acknowledge him before the angels of God. That's just another one of those literary devices. It's not that you're going to be acknowledged before the angels. The angels are before God, so you're being acknowledged to God, okay? But he who disowns me will be disowned before the angels of God. It's God, okay? Everyone who speaks. Now, here's the one. That's, this is the problem. This is probably the, the, the number one most enigmatic, debated, misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And hopefully, we, I told you a couple weeks ago, we touched on this. I said we'd get to it, and we could unpack it so that we could be clear. We'll attempt to do that now. Everyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So let me ask you, have you ever spoken against the Son of Man? Of course you have. We all have. How do we speak against the Son of Man? How do we speak against Jesus? 
See, here's what we have a tendency to think of. Listen to me very carefully. We have a tendency to look at these, what we call scandalous sins, right? These massive sins where we see people actually fall out of the sky and come down and explode their lives and the people around them. That, that's, we, we may not have, ooh, we may not have any scandalous sins, but what about those? What about those? We good? Did we lose it? Are we on? What about those? What about those? What we call respectable sins? You ever been anxious? You ever been impatient? I mean, it's right silly to even ask those things, right? That's denying. That's speaking against Jesus. Jesus said, do not be anxious in any, any, every, anything, but in prayer and supplication, make your requests to God. We're all, we all have this. We all deal with this. We all speak against him. So we want to be careful that we don't have these categories, that at least we're not over here. You can always look around and find somebody doing worse than you, can't you? That's one of my favorite things to do every Sunday. I look and see some of you who are doing worse than me, and I feel really good. No, I do. I go home. I tell, my, I, I tell Kim at the end of the day, I feel really good. I saw some really good, bad sinners here today. I'm bad, but I ain't that bad, honey. You better be happy with what you got. No, right? I see some bad stuff in it. No. Right? What did Paul say? He's the chief sinner. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Not just that day we got saved, but every moment of every day, we are in need of God's grace to sanctify us. So we have to understand how often we turn away from God. But now watch. So we know that we do that. So we're in that category. But now watch the next category. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, uh uh-oh, now this is something that's deep, will not be forgiven. Okay, so what does that mean? I'm going to give you a category to kind of just bring to light the difference between the two. I want to show you two different rejections, but I want to make a point. Well, let me show you the two rejections, then I'll make a final point. This would be really the difference between these two, Peter and Judas. Did Peter speak against Jesus? And did Judas? Sure, they both did, right? But what was the difference between the two as it applies to this passage this morning and what we're trying to teach? Jesus would say Peter's rejection of him was in the flesh. How do, how do we know? Peter was fearful. He was afraid of a little servant girl. Well, you were with him. I, I, I saw No, I wasn't. Then later in that evening in the courtyard, well, your accent betrays you. you were with, no, I wasn't with him. And finally, for the third time, we know you were with him. You're part of him. No, I'm, I was not. Not a bad rooster, right? I might get that role in the Christmas pageant this year. We deny Jesus in the flesh all the time. Don't think that you don't. We all do. That, that's, not, that's not what this passage is talking about. You know, people say to me, and this is not uncommon, Pastor, I'm, I'm fearful that I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin and I'm doomed to hell. Let me make something perfectly clear. You couldn't ask that question if you had just by asking the question should confirm in your heart that you could never have done that. You couldn't ask it. So the difference is Peter's rejection is in the flesh and Judas's rejection of Jesus is in the faith. That's all. There's no faith in the heart of Judas. None. There was faith, very weak faith for, for Peter. Is your faith weak sometimes? Of course it is. Mine is weak. So that's what the passage means. Don't, don't be fearful of... of 
it, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant, persistent, unrepentant rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit and, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what that is. That's the Pharisees. He's talking to a group of people who just simply resist and reject what they can see and touch and feel and taste. The feeding of the five. He, they see it. They're exper- and they reject it over and over and over. And that's what he says. You are rejecting the Holy Spirit. And you are rejecting yourself all the way into hell. And the problem is your hypocrisy is taking all of the people of God with you. You are hypocrites. There's probably nothing he hates more than hypocrisy. So, 751, here's the word. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. What a powerful statement. You don't think of hearts and ears being circumcised, do you? So it's drawing you into this passage. Let's pause for a moment. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. What does that mean? Your, your Your heart is still beating for you. It hasn't been circumcised. It hasn't been... Circumcision was a sign of setting apart. Don't, don't think of just the act of cutting. Listen to, to, the, to what it's pointing to. I always want to see what, what is it pointing to. Your hearts are still beating for you. So says, no, your hearts and your, your ears, you're, you're hearing only what you want to hear. You're not listening to the truth. You hear what you want to hear. You ever been involved in conversations like that? You walk away and you go, man, I just... I don't know what they were listening to. They hear what they want to hear. You are just, then then he hammers, right? In Acts, this is powerful from Stephen. You are just like your ancestors. Say that to somebody. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So there's the picture, okay? See it? A couple points here that you should be comforted, especially if you're doing any evangelism at all, and we all should be doing it. Listen to these words, 11 and 12. When brought before authorities, do not worry about defending yourself or what you will say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Okay, you ready for this? I promise you this will be worth the price of admission. We just went back to the Old Testament, right? And how did we go back? With leaven, right? We went back with leaven. We went back with the unleavened bread, the festival. We're going to go back here. Why are we going to go back here? Because you need to see how this takes us all the way back. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you don't have to worry about the words. Why? I spoke for Moses back then. And I'm going to speak for you. Take a look. The Lord said to Moses, who's the Lord? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus was there, right? Jesus in the bush. Right? The angel of the Lord's in the bush. It won't burn up. So Jesus says, I spoke to Moses. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? I the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. See how Jesus ties the whole thing together? He he takes us back. That's how you have to read the scriptures. That's how we get our kids ready for college. To show them this is one word from one God to one world and how it fits together. It's the only coherent worldview that exists. It's the only one that explains really the reality of life. And probably the greatest challenge that the unbeliever has that they cannot put their finger on and explain is why is everything so messed up? 
They don't have an understanding. Their understanding is incoherent. It doesn't make sense. Yours does. Man rebelled and turned away from God. Yes? That's what brought the mess in. So we have a worldview that makes sense. It speaks of a creator God, the fall of man, the promised redeemer. And then we have what? This enormous sacrificial system, 1,500 years. If you have someone today who is not from Jerusalem, you know what I mean by that. They don't have a biblical worldview. So you meet them and you say, I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to tell them they're a sinner in need of a savior. Let me tell you how well that's going to go. But here's why. It's incoherent. That doesn't make any sense to someone who doesn't have a biblical worldview. Well, they know there's something wrong with them, so that part, okay, don't call me a sinner, but I know there's something wrong with me. Nobody's perfect. Okay. But unless you understand the sacrificial system, then you don't have any understanding of why Jesus would die for you. It's like telling somebody this. If you're evangelizing someone and you want to really make somebody feel good, you go, God loves you. What does that mean? First of all, you have to define what God. That didn't, that didn't say anything to the person. And then what? Well, what does love mean? From a biblical perspective, what does God loves you mean? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son on a cross to die for you, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what God loves you means. But that's incoherent to an unbeliever who doesn't have a biblical frame of reference. Oh, God loves me. Good. Happy about that. No. We have to explain the terms the categories are no longer ours, as D.A. Carson would say. They're not ours. So we have to be able to enter in and speak to them. So Jesus is showing us how this all beautifully fits together. All of it. I'll give you the words. Don't worry about anything. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the wisdom. None of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you. How do we close? Don't miss this. This is, this is powerful. This is for your comfort. Ready? I skipped 6 and 7 so that we could come back to it and show you the comfort right in the middle of the passage. Why was, why was this comfort important? Because these guys in just a few months were going to see their Lord crucified, dead and buried. Then they were going to struggle seeing him alive and try to figure out, is this real? Then once they got that, now he's going to go away again. But he says, I must go and send the Holy Spirit. Acts 1-8, you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, right? Acts 1-8. But now what? Now the world is coming after them. That's why we don't have to fear preaching the gospel and sharing in a pluralistic society. That's exactly what they were in back then. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed, though, we speak to a different culture, a culture that's actually running away from Christianity. They didn't have Christianity back then, so it was different. You still have to unpack worldviews, but it was different. We have a culture that's running away from Christianity. So it's totally different on how you have to engage them. So, so now we're going to go back to the comfort in the passage. Watch this. This is so powerful that it should bring you... Now, you're not concerned with, with, with people charging through the door and putting us to death today, perhaps. Not concerned to being put to death for your faith. But what about when the doctor calls? Pink slip at the office. School call. So I got to tell you something, parents. Come on in. Got to have a team meeting. Oh, Jackie. 
right? You have all of this stuff that goes on, and Jesus says, hold on here. I want to give you some comfort because you're going to have to deal with real life in a moment. You're going to have to deal. I'm going to leave. You're going to have to deal with the reality of what's going to go on in this fallen, broken, sin-filled world. You're going to have to deal with this. So I'm going to get you ready. Ready? Are not five sparrows. What's a sparrow? In the context of what Jesus is saying, it, it, it meant absolutely nothing. It was, it was the, the least expensive little item at, 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 the, at the public fair. It was, it was the, the meal for the poor people to take a sparrow and to, to skin it and cook it and eat it. Okay. Are not five sold for two pennies? Yet, this is what we call arguing from the lesser to the greater. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about would not, if an earthly father would give a good gift to his children, earthly father, good gift to children, how much more your father in heaven, lesser to greater, same thing here. So we have the sparrow. Sparrow's lesser than, than you. So this, Jesus said, you, yet not one of them is forgotten of God. So you ever feel forgotten of God? He didn't forget the sparrows. So he's not going to forget you. Now watch this one. This one really gets good. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now some of you are saying, well, that's no big deal. I don't have that many hairs. Yeah, right there. I got you. Right? So God knows that. I only got a handful. I know how many I have. What's the point? Don't fear. You're worth more than many sparrows. Do you understand the point of that passage? God is sovereignly in control over every single thing that's going on. And we get fearful over stuff that Jesus says, don't. I got this. Yeah, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I told you it was going to be hard. You're going to have trouble and tribulation in this world. That's, that's it. That's part, of, that's part of your sanctification. I didn't bring you straight home for a reason. All of this I'm using to sanctify you. But I got it. I'm in control of it. A doctor's not in control. I am. A cancer's not ruling your life. Don't waste that, Piper would say. Don't waste that cancer. God's using that to sanctify us. So, uh, quick point. Don't you have to ask the question? What's up with the sparrow? Go back all the way. Want to see how it all fits? Go back all the way in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. You know how I used chapters 1 and 2? You know how I used it when I was finally... I had an understanding of my faith. I used it to debate, right? I loved apologetics and debate the evolutionist. And we'd use one and two as the t- proof texts for creation, right? Not anymore. I have no time for those people or for any of that. What is one and two? Genesis. Forget proof text for creation. It's the backdrop of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Let me say it one more time. Listen to me carefully. If some of you are going back, you're going to go back, right? One and two, you're going to read it, right? In the beginning, chapters one and two. If Jesus was already promised before the fall, before creation, then what does Genesis one and two have to be? The backdrop for God's unfolding plan of redemption. Why the sparrow? Because a couple thousand years later, Jesus was going to use it as an object lesson on how valuable you are. Why the lilies of the field? You think about all of the things that Jesus, you think he just, it just came to his, oh, the ravens, let me use those today. No, all of it was created 
for you. Everything that takes place is working toward your redemption. All of Genesis 1 and 2 is God's backdrop to it. So this is to give you such comfort that you can't, you've heard of the phrase, now you understand what peace that passes all understanding means. Now you should know. You don't understand that peace. It only comes from on high. I asked early on, how do you deal with what you're going through? I have him. I have him. I visited just yesterday. We had a man chuck on Wednesday night. Had, a, had an incident right here on the campus in a stroke. And the ministry that our team did to him and, and the guys in uh, the, the fellowship hall was amazing. And he wanted to go home, but we, we wouldn't allow it. Called rescue. They came. Sure enough, took him to the hospital. A couple hours, he'd have been dead. Had a blood clot heading to the brain. So the emergency surgery went in. So I went and saw him yesterday. He was, his heart, overwhelmed with joy. Whether he'd gone home or not, And yet he saw God at work saying, well, I guess there's more for me to do. And I said, there is. Remember, when David had finished his ministry, he fell asleep. No sleep until you're done with your service. This is a comfort to God's people. God is in control. Nothing happens to you apart from the control of the Almighty. Here's the passage. Take this one home with you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword (laughs) as it is written for your sake we face death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything at all in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that truth? If it's not your truth, it needs to be before you leave today. Christ with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands says these words to you. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Universally, with all those that I speak to, the one thing that I could say to you that it seems like everyone is looking for, everyone, not eternal life and and salvation, they don't have categories. Everyone is looking for this one word shalom. They're looking for peace because they have no peace. They have no peace at home, they have no peace in their marriage. They have no peace with their children. They have no peace at the office. They have no peace anywhere. And they're looking for this peace. That peace only comes through Christ. That's that's how we can connect them to a Savior. He has that one thing that you desire most that you cannot get apart from Him. There is no peace apart from Christ. It doesn't exist. You can insulate yourself perhaps for years if things are going well in your life. But you cannot have that inner peace. It doesn't exist because you're an image bearer of God and God will not allow it until you're His. 
Will you come? By grace through faith, will you come to Christ today? Right now is a moment of salvation. Later today, it may be too late. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Come to Christ, and you will have a peace and a rest you will never get. And let me finish with this. Everyone, every single person would like to hear these words. And I lived happily ever after. Only in Christ will your life have a happy ending. Only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, right now, if there's someone who's never prayed to receive Jesus, by way of the internet, in this holy sanctuary right now, let them pray these words. We're not not saved by a prayer. But we could pray simple words like this. And all believers, just pray with me in your hearts. And if you've never prayed, pray this day. Pray this day. Lord, I, I heard the gospel today. I, 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 I understand the basics that I'm separated from you. I know that. I know that I'm separated from you. I'll use the category now that the pastor has given to me, a sinner in need of a savior. I'll use that. And I know that I can't save myself, so I call on you. I cry out from the depths of my heart. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. Raise me from death to life. And then give me the confident assurance that nothing will ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I confess my sins to you, Lord, and I turn my life over to you. And I pray this in Christ's name. And Father, for every single person who's walked with you, some for decades, help us to keep on walking. By faith and not by sight, knowing that we all walk imperfectly. Not one day have we done what you've asked us to do. And yet you love us and you never turn from us. So help us this day. And we give you all the honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stay?